It's a beautiful day. The beaches are open and people are having a wonderful time. Donald Trump's critics have used that movie quote to liken him to Larry Vaughan, the villain in Jaws, the politician who disregards the shark threat to keep the resort open for business. Amity is a summer town, Vaughan says. We need summer dollars. Before Boris Johnson was the UK's Prime Minister, he named Mayor Vaughan as his political hero. Quote, he kept the beaches open. He did the right thing. We don't know President Trump's take on Jaws, but the tension between public health advice and the need to avert economic calamity has never been clearer. With 220 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can America avoid a prolonged economic slump? Congress has stumped up nearly $2 trillion to rescue the American economy. But is it enough? White House advisers worry the damage inflicted by a sustained lockdown may be worse than the toll of the virus itself. Before COVID-19 hit, President Trump staked his re-election on his success in juicing the economy. Now, he wants the country back open for business by Easter, just two weeks from now. In this episode, we'll look at one of the worst hit sectors, the restaurant trade, and find out what history suggests might be missing from the current bailout plan. With me as ever to talk about all of this, Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief. Charlotte, how are you doing? You must be in week three of quarantine, are you now? Or are you allowed out of the apartment? (laughs) I am going outside. I'm taking my children outside about once a day to take their scooters around the block. But that's it. New York looks very different than it did just a few weeks ago. The streets are largely empty. Our building has all but hollowed out with people trying to quarantine elsewhere. The city is using its little electronic kiosks around the city to try to encourage retired doctors to come and help at the city's hospitals, which are increasingly overwhelmed with patients. So it definitely feels like a very different version of New York than we're all used to. Well, you're right at the center of the American epidemic, unfortunately. We'll be talking about how New York is faring a little bit more in a moment. And John Fasman, our Washington correspondent, you're hunkered down in upstate Connecticut. You've been sending me pictures that look absolutely beautiful of snowy forests. How are things your end? Things are beautiful here, but as in New York, the absence of people is really quite striking. I mean, this is not a very popular corner of the world anyway, but it feels especially empty now. Hmm. Okay, let's begin by taking stock of the impact COVID-19's had on the economy so far. Idris Kaloun, our US policy correspondent based in Washington, D.C., has been writing about that in this week's paper and also about the bailout. The Department of Labor released their weekly unemployment numbers on Thursday, and that showed that 3.3 million Americans had now filed for unemployment. That's compared to just 200,000 the week before. And one of the sad things is that it's not expected to get any better. There are going to be continued layoffs, and also there were reports of some state unemployment offices being overrun, unable to process claims. Some of those are going to also appear in subsequent weeks. So it seems like we're in the midst of a pretty deep recession. Let's talk about that bill that 
Senate has passed unanimously. And as we are talking now, the House is expected to pass soon. It's aimed at making the recovery as speedy as possible when the economy opens up again. Does it seem fit for purpose? I I think broadly it does. It tries to stabilize businesses, both small and large, that are struggling to stay afloat. And it also radically expands unemployment benefits, provides a direct check to people. It provides money to hospitals and states as well. Uh, It seems to be hitting all the boxes that uh, you would expect for a big piece of legislation in the midst of a crisis as large as America is facing right now. As you say, it's a remarkable piece of legislation, the biggest fiscal stimulus in American history. Let's try and break it down into slightly more manageable chunks. So there are two big parts of it, I suppose. One is the help that goes directly to Americans, and one is the help that goes to companies. Let's take the help direct to Americans first. Tell me a little bit about what that's made up of. So for most Americans, an adult would get $1,200 in a check from the government, and every kid in the family would get $500. So if you were a median income family of four, you'd expect a check from Uncle Sam of $3,400. And the idea is that uh, by sending out these large checks to lots of Americans, you stimulate the drop-off in demand that comes from people who might not have lost their job but might be spending less. The second piece of it is, is a more tailored one. The big chunk of it is the unemployment insurance changes. So unemployment insurance in America is not nearly as generous as it is in Europe or other developed countries. The typical benefits amount to like 200 to $300 a week. Uh, which is not very much money. The bill here tops up those weekly benefits that people would have gotten by $600 a week, which is pretty substantial. I mean, that's something that you might be able to support yourself, possibly a family member as well. It also expands the number of people who are able to apply for unemployment insurance. So typically, if you're an Uber driver, for example, and you were self-employed and you lost your job because no one is taking taxis anymore, uh, you wouldn't be able to file for unemployment. And in this bill, you would be able to they also increased um, the amount of money that's distributed via SNAP, which is the food assistance program. Uh, so those are the aspects that go directly to people. Okay. And corporations aren't people, as Mitt Romney once suggested they were, but we kind of know what he meant. Most Americans work for corporations. And so there's some direct help to corporations there that no doubt will end up helping shareholders a good deal, but also is designed to help American citizens just via the companies they they may work for. Tell us a bit about the corporate support. There's a section that's targeted towards big industries, places like the airlines, other aspects that the Secretary of the Treasury thinks are important to national security. But there's also a sizable chunk of the bill that's devoted to bailing out small businesses, which I think might be helpful in heading off the criticism of crony capitalism if it does, in fact, save mom-and-pop shops that people go to from uh, from going bust. That brings me to the $2 trillion question. Do you think overall this is going to work, this whole package? I think there's a lot of good in this package, and I think it will definitely ameliorate some of the harm. I don't think that you can entirely cushion an economy from basically a self-sustained shutdown, which is what we're in right now. At some point, you have to open up the economy. That's the only way that you can keep things going. But, you know, this will, I think, cushion a lot of the harm. So, Charlotte, Idris seems fairly impressed by the contents of the bill that Congress came up with fairly quickly by Congress's usual rather slow standards. What do you make of it all? It's certainly much, much better than nothing. And you saw the bill evolve in recent days and weeks 
from something that wouldn't have helped much to something that would. So the White House had originally advocated for a payroll tax holiday, which of course would have done nothing to help those with the lowest incomes. And now instead it's moved to direct payments. But there is this reality that you can't fend off a recession. It's already here. And instead, what this bill is trying to do is give families some help in the meantime and then accelerate the rebound. But there's going to be a significant amount of pain. The unemployment numbers are so astonishing. So in the worst weeks of the Great Recession, unemployment claims rose by over 300,000. The numbers reported this week were over 3 million. That's a really striking and historic rise in joblessness in the United States. So this is an important bill, but it's almost hard to conceive of the scale of economic harm that's currently underway. John Fassman, talk me through the politics of this bill, because analysts of Congress like you and like me, who worked in D.C., you know, habitually describe Congress as dysfunctional, unable to pass important legislation and so forth. And yet here we are, you know, unanimous vote in the Senate. We're talking before the House has voted, but this bill's expected to sail through the House. Really quite an impressive package if you get into the weeds and all done quite quickly and apparently without a tremendous amount of partisan rancor, though there was some, you know, long negotiations between the White House and Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader. Are we wrong to assume generally, as we tend to, that Congress is dysfunctional? I mean, you know, in a time of crisis, it seems that things can work quite well. I think it's Winston Churchill who said that Americans can be counted on to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And I think we saw Congress rise to the occasion in this one instance. Whether that can last is an open question. I wish there were more grounds for optimism than I feel there are right now. But it did manage to get its act together and do the right thing. It even passed the Senate unanimously, which I was kind of surprised by. Yes, that unanimity in the Senate is striking, isn't it? I suppose the political control of the White House matters a great deal in all of this, doesn't it? I mean, if you go back and look at the bailouts that happened of the auto industry under President Obama, there was a lot of opposition from Republicans in Congress to them. And actually, I suspect when you look through the House votes, there'll be plenty of Republicans who voted against those bailouts a decade ago, but who voted for this one, which is a sort of rather hard to square and rather hard to be consistent um, to take those two positions simultaneously. But the fact that there's a Republican president brings lots of Republicans in Congress on board in a way that wouldn't have been the case if you had a Democrat in the White House. I think that can be explained by one simple fact, which is that in 2009, Republicans wanted to use the Great Recession to weaken a Democratic president. And the Democrats in Congress this time decided not to do that. They decided to do what was best for America that was really struggling. The politics of this, though, are going to continue to be tricky. So yes, you had unanimity in the Senate. But as you referred to in your opening comments, John Prito, Trump is talking about having the country open by Easter. Liberty University, which is a Christian college, is inviting students back to campus. You do see quite different modes of communication about the lockdown, depending on which state you're in. And unfortunately, the virus doesn't particularly respect state borders. And I think in the coming weeks, you'll see this awkward and quite dangerous situation unfolding in which that very real trade between the desire to mitigate economic pain and the desire to save lives will be played out in different ways in different states across the country. And so America is just so vast. It's not a small European country with centralized control 
where you can make a decision on behalf of the entire country. So you will see differing responses from one state to the next, and that could have, in turn, a dramatic impact on whether cases continue to spike. All of this is going to be really politically tricky in the month of April. And to a certain extent, though, the trade-off between public health and a thriving economy is somewhat false, right? The trade-off is really between economic pain now and getting the virus under control and slowly restarting the economy, or precipitously restarting the economy, having the virus spread, and tremendous economic pain and a public health catastrophe later. That all sounds right, though it's also worth noting that the epidemiology of this virus, the way it spreads, the kind of statistical math of trying to predict it, is all quite uncertain. There's a lot of weight being placed on this model produced by Imperial College London in the UK, which is a repurposed old flu model. It's probably the most useful thing we have to think through how this virus is likely to spread and all the social distancing and the shuttering of the economy that's really been inspired by that model all seems very prudent. However, it's possible that it's incorrect. It is, I suppose it's possible that the US economy is able to reopen you know, sooner than we we currently think. You can read all our COVID-19 coverage by heading to economist.com slash coronavirus. Subscribe if you haven't already. There's plenty more to read there besides the virus. There's a great obituary this week of Michel Roux, the Frenchman who made British food edible. Economist.com slash pod2020 is the place to go to receive 12 issues for $12 or £12. Both of those links are in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get a sense of how the lockdown is affecting people in one of the sectors that's been hit hardest, restaurants. John Fasman, you've been talking to people in Chicago. That's right. My brother works in the restaurant business there, and he recently had to close the bar he managed and delay plans to open his own place. And a lot of his friends and colleagues are also out of work. So I talked to him and a couple of others there to get a sense of what happens when an entire industry comes to a screeching stop. In 1985, my parents immigrated to America from China. They were uneducated, didn't have any money, and didn't speak English. It turns out there were some warning signs. Lily Wong's parents own a restaurant in Chinatown called Moon Palace. It seats about 70, and it's kind of in a weird location next to a fire station. When my parents first bought it, it was definitely a little sad and run down. When I try to search my mind for memories of the place, all I can picture are dingy yellow walls and a lot of broken chairs and some large round tables with Lazy Susans that are actually still there today. Before COVID-19 had a name, people knew the virus came from China. Chinese-American businesses and Chinese-Americans themselves, unfortunately, were the first to suffer as a result. It's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly when my parents first started to notice a slowdown. I don't think it was like until mid-February that it even crossed my parents' minds that there was this like correlation of the slower business and, you know, this kind of xenophobia around Chinatown and Chinese people. Eventually, the streets got quieter and emptier. I remember first hearing about a business closing, and that was in February. Unlike all the businesses that had to close March 15th, these places have been suffering already for months. Lily was working with my brother. They lost their jobs when restaurants across Illinois were ordered to close last week. 
So now she's helping her parents with takeout and delivery. You know, if this goes on for a couple of months, I think the restaurant will be okay. But anything over three or four months, and then this will be a very serious and difficult conversation. But for some restaurant owners, the difficult conversations have already started. Basically, our whole world just stopped. And I had laid 100% of my employees off. Jason Hamill owns Lula Cafe, an award-winning farm-to-table restaurant in Logan Square. And he's a partner in two other restaurants. He also co-founded Pilot Light, a nonprofit that weaves food education into the curriculum in Chicago's public schools. We effectively are not going to be able to pay any bills. Whatever cash we have will go to supporting our employees. Restaurants operate in a fashion of cash comes in one night and then you pay, pay for what you bought the next day. I'm basically looking down the barrel at taking something that I worked for for 20 years and potentially losing it. He's waiting to see if the stimulus package will help. Everything seems to have stopped. And the, the sort of quiet of this is really a different kind of disturbing. My mood is like suspended grief. We're basically at the end of the rope, just sort of holding on. But the economic impact of the virus isn't only going to be felt in lost paychecks. In a highly entrepreneurial sector that has boomed since the last recession, opportunities lost will also take their toll. We fired everyone because of this virus. That is my brother, Ben Fassman. In addition to being one of my favorite people on earth, he manages bars. He and his business partner, Andy, have done a series of successful pop-ups serving Lao food and cocktails. There's a dish that Andy calls his favorite comfort food called Kalpiek, which is more or less like a chicken noodle soup. Andy's chicken wings have been on pretty much every menu that we've ever done at any pop-up, and they're some of the best, we think, in the city. They were about to open their own place. We wanted a restaurant that sat 60 to 75 people. A huge bar presence. We wanted at least 14, 16 seats at the bar itself. A few months back, we found a landlord who actually approached us about opening something in his building. So we went ahead and hired architects, and we got as far as getting the drawings done, working on plumbing, electrical, all of that stuff. We had people on board that were investing in the restaurant, and then the coronavirus hit. Like much of America right now, his plans are on hold, indefinitely. <clears throat> I don't know where we will pick up. It's hard to say. <sighs> I have no idea what's going to happen with this, with this industry. I know that people want to drink badly. Well, John Fasman, I'm sorry to hear that Ben is having such a tough time, and I hope he at least has found a drink for himself. But his situation is pretty typical. There are 9.6 million restaurant staff in America, and other sectors that look particularly vulnerable are retail. About 8.8 .8 million people work in retail in America on, on shop floors. Hotel workers, a further 2 million people. So it's going to have a very broad effect across America's economy. Yeah, just to get a sense of how big those numbers are, that's well over one-tenth of all American jobs. And, you know, businesses and economy generally just isn't built to withstand an enormous exogenous shock that just shuts down all demand. And so I think while restaurants obviously will come back, a lot of the specific restaurants that we know won't. Their owners will have moved on. Other people will have moved on. And so it's an industry that's just going to undergo an enormous transformation. It's going to be really painful for millions and millions of people. 
In New York, where I am, leisure, hospitality, restaurants, theaters are a very big part of the economy. And Broadway, of course, is closed. I've received large number of emails from restaurants and theaters emailing, asking for contributions to support this, their staff or simply for the institution itself. In traditional retail, which of course has been struggling, this is going to be very painful as well. So if you walk through New York, you see quite a lot of vacant storefronts as retailers can't continue to pay rent. I've heard of retail tenants here in New York who are trying to invoke force majeure to try to avoid rent payments for several months. This is going to be a big problem that will last for quite some time, both for restaurants and I think particularly for retail, which was already sort of on its knees as a sector. Charlotte, that's obviously very painful for business owners, but what about their staff? The data is quite concerning because when workers fall, tens of millions of them have absolutely no cushion. So the majority of Americans have no savings. Nearly half of America's workforce, about 44%, qualify as being low wage. That's with a median yearly income of $18,000. So it's just incredibly painful to have the economy shut down when you have absolutely nothing to fall back on. Yes, so the checks that the federal government is about to send out to all American Charlotte will help a bit, but not enough. And the other thing to keep in mind are just the logistics of actually obtaining that help. So Congress passes a bill, and then it's not like magically the cash shows up on an individual's doorstep. If you're in the IRS system, you could have direct payment electronically. Otherwise, you're trying to do this through checks. Signing up for unemployment benefits and unemployment insurance is actually kind of tricky. And in Ohio, there was such a surge that the website crashed. So even when help is available, it's quite frustrating as a worker to try to get that help. And then there's the separate question of whether that help is sufficient. So again, this bill from Congress is hugely important, but it's worth keeping in mind that there is a limit to how much assistance it can provide and the time frame in which it can provide it. So John Fassman, just in the short term, what do the next few weeks look like for Ben and for his co-workers? Well, I think the good news is that this is an industry that's extremely supportive. And there have been a number of benefits for laid off restaurant workers. There have been Uh, restaurateurs offering pay-what-you-can meals for people in the service industry out of work. And there's a lot of creativity in thinking about what comes next. So the economy may not come roaring back, and the pain will take a while to work its way through the system. But in this particular industry, you have a lot of people who work hard, who really support each other, and who are really committed to getting their businesses back on their feet as soon as they can. Well, thank you both. In a moment, we'll look back in history to find out what's missing from the COVID bailout plan. Ryan Avent writes the free exchange column for The Economist. We asked him for his help in putting this week's bailout package into some historical context. He says you have to go back to the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt to find a real parallel in US economic history. Roosevelt was elected in 1932. He started his first term in 1933, and this was four years into the Great Depression. No one quite knew what it was going to take from governments and from societies to get through all of that hardship. Pressing a button at Washington, President Roosevelt stopped the construction of the $75 million San Francisco-Oakland Bridge in California, providing work for thousands of men. 
Franklin Roosevelt had run on a plan to try to restart the American economy that he called the New Deal. And it was kind of a, a throw everything against the wall and, and see what sticks sort of approach. There were things designed to boost economic growth. There were things designed to strengthen the American economy through infrastructure investment. It is an honor to initiate the construction of the greatest bridge ever built, the bridge between San Francisco and Oakland, because it brings additional employment to thousands of men and women through the medium of the public works program symbolizes the upturn that has, has come to our industrial life in the United States. Then there were other ways to try to keep people's spirits up and enrich the national discussion. There was a writer's program that involved getting people to capture the moment in prose and poetry. It was intended to address the, the specific failures in the economy itself, but also to try to shore up the spirit of the society and to make sure people remembered what it was that was worth it uh, about resurrecting the economy and the society in the first place. After five days of arduous negotiations, after sleep-deprived nights and marathon negotiating sessions, we have a bipartisan agreement on the largest rescue package in American history. As we look at what the American government is doing so far to try to address this economic crisis, the first extraordinary thing to note is the, the size of the package. Nothing on that scale has been deployed by the government as an economic package since the Depression. The difference in the policy conversation now relative to where we were six months ago, it's just extraordinary. Things have become possible that seemed utterly impossible back then. It will rush new resources onto the front lines of our nation's healthcare fight, and it will inject trillions of dollars of cash into the economy as fast as possible. Certainly, you would not have thought that the government would be sending these $1,000 checks out without worrying about the consequences for the government budget. Uh, certainly, you wouldn't think that Republicans and Democrats alike would be agreeing that businesses needed massive government help. There wouldn't be conversations about should we ask major corporations to stop producing the things that they're producing and in instead to produce things for the virus-fighting effort. It's a historic day because it matches a historic crisis. And our people need help. They were crying out to us to help. And the good news here, it shows you that this Senate can function when the need is so real and so pressing. I think some people feel hopeful about the speed of the shift because it may mean that other big national priorities that, that we haven't been able to tackle perhaps can be tackled through the sense of urgency that's been created by this moment. It is interesting, though, as you compare the experience in the 1930s and 40s and our reaction then with how we are responding now. There is a similarity in terms of the notion that we, we had to act swiftly, we had to tear up the rule book. There is a, a subtle difference, perhaps an important difference, in the way these policies are being communicated to people and the way that policymakers are thinking about the role of society. Happiness lies not in the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of creative effort, the joy in the moral stimulation of work, 
no longer must be forgotten in the mad chase of evanescent profits. During the Depression, there was a very explicit effort by President Roosevelt and other leaders to try to communicate to people that this was something we all had to do together, that there was shared sacrifice involved, but that if there was sufficient solidarity, we would all get through it. And that really the policy response was about building an economy where we all looked after each other and kind of recognized this sense of, of mutual responsibility that we had to people in society to take care of each other in hard times. A true destiny is not to be ministered unto, but to minister to ourselves to our fellow men. And I feel like a message like that now would be important. It would help people understand why these things are necessary and, and how their own behavior plays a role in getting the country through this crisis. But we've sort of gotten away from asking those sorts of things of people. and. The way a lot of things are communicated, it's just sort of sit tight, we'll try to minimize the sacrifice on you, when really we need to acknowledge the fact that we're all in this together and we are going to have to make some sacrifices for each other. Well, like Ryan, I'm fascinated by the policy responses we've seen from Congress. I mean, clearly what's going on in America with COVID-19 is awful. But from the point of view of a policy wonk, it's deeply fascinating to see the federal government come up with these tools that, as Ryan says, only a year ago, a couple of months ago, were considered way too radical. I covered the beginnings of the financial crisis for The Economist. And at the time, there were some proposals that the federal government ought to send checks directly to Americans, and they were considered way too radical. And if you think about the Democratic primary, when Andrew Yang was in before he, he dropped out, you know, he had this UBI idea that the federal government would send checks directly to Americans to try and counter the kind of economic shocks from automation and from the China effect. And those were widely dismissed as being wholly unrealistic, probably rightly so. And yet here we are with the federal government sending checks directly to Americans with expansions of unemployment insurance, which seemed you know, inconceivable um, until quite recently. When this is all over, we will have a whole load of data about the degree to which these unorthodox policy responses actually work. Part of the reason why you see the government becoming so experimental is because the usual tools just don't work. So a central bank could lower interest rates in order to stimulate the economy, but interest rates are already near zero in rich countries. Um, traditional stimulus that are designed to sort of get people out and about and shopping or engaging in other economic activities are here entirely irrelevant. And so you have to come up with new ideas. I was really interested in the bill's inclusion of these federally guaranteed loans that are available for small businesses and then would be forgiven if you don't fire workers. That's very unusual. We haven't seen that type of experimentation happening in recent memory. America, maybe just for a period of months, is about to get something approximating a European welfare state. So it's going to be really fascinating to see how that happens. I think that's true. And as our cover leader this week points out, in crises, the state often expands dramatically. So you see that in things like the tracking apps that governments in South Korea and Singapore have used to follow the spread of the coronavirus and determine who has come into contact with who. The real question will come in a year or two after the crisis have died down. How much of that state expansion recedes and how much power does the state retain? 
Yes, John, as you say, there are different kinds of state expansion here, aren't there? There's the one in the economic sphere, which we've mainly been focused on, and that's a that's an old story. The first federal bailout came after the panic of 1792. So, you know, if you look through American history, you do have this long story of government expanding during crises and then receding afterwards, but perhaps not quite to the point where it was before. But then there's this other kind of government expansion into the realm of privacy. And I'd imagine, John, you would be more concerned about that. You've written quite a lot about privacy and about civil liberties in in America. Well, you know, as a matter of principle, I find those location tracking apps that send your data to the government and the government can then intervene based on that data. I found it abhorrent. As an epidemiological matter, though, it's a pretty good idea. So my principled objections are somewhat relaxed in this case because we needed to stop a disease. As long as there are mechanisms to grab that power back after the crisis recedes, I'm okay with it. You do see this debate between principles and reality playing out in real time in New York because in New York, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, is pushing Donald Trump forcefully to use essentially powers granted during wartime for the government to be more forceful in compelling companies to create certain essential medical supplies. The Trump administration has so far demurred and various conservative groups think that this would be a dangerous expansion of state power. Andrew Cuomo's point is basically, look, we need thousands and thousands more ventilators than we do have. I don't care about your principled objection in the long term. I'm talking about a crisis now. So you see this playing out in very real time on a day-to-day basis in New York, which currently accounts for 7% of the world's COVID cases. One more thing I'd like to add as we think about the long-term impact of this crisis is that the data from recessions is that if you graduate from university during an economic downturn, your wages are depressed for life. This is not something that you recover from quickly. And I wonder with this crisis, both for recent graduates as well as other workers, whether this is something that stays with them for a long time. And then when I was in the Midwest and I covered kind of North Dakota to Ohio from 2007 to 11, I followed one town in Ohio, Clinton, Ohio, which was the site of the biggest mass layoff of the recession. And there were some specific workers that I spoke with over a period of time to see how they were faring. In the immediate aftermath of the layoff, They were trying to figure out unemployment insurance and so forth. When I went back a year or two later and continued to check in, they were still unemployed. This was something that continued to affect the community for a very long time to come. This COVID story is going to be an urgent one in the coming weeks, in the coming months, as we try to get the spread of the virus under control in the United States. But the impact of this is going to be felt for a very long time. Thank you both. To finish, the news that Charlotte has been waiting for, The Economist's office in London may remain shut, but we've managed to access the archive online. So the history quiz is back. Thank you to Mina in our New York office for helping with that. We were talking about FDR a little bit earlier. There's a piece in The Economist marking his election in 1932. One of the most consequential American presidencies was about to begin, but the paper didn't expect very much from Franklin Roosevelt. This is a quote. We doubt whether Mr. Roosevelt will succeed in evolving measures very different from the Hoover administration. The article did depart from this sober analysis to anticipate one big policy change. What was it? 
did it have something to do with uh, with with the gold standard, with central bank independence? Charlotte, do you want to have a guess? I'm so astonishingly bad at these quizzes that I almost feel like I should just remain silent. Think of a big unpopular policy of the 1920s mm. that might have been overturned, and then you'll be along the right lines. It must have been prohibition, but I feel like I'm cheating a bit with that lead and various other clues. Um, it was indeed <laughs> the repeal of prohibition. Well done, Charlotte. Yes. That's You get points. Oh, so humiliating. Um, the Economist reckoned the new administration would permit, quote, at least the consumption of light wines and beer. I have a second question for you, since you enjoyed the first one so much. Which was the last dry state in America? Something like, I bet it was Kansas. John Fasman? Mississippi or Alabama. Somewhere with a lot of Baptists. It was, I mean, you have an unfair advantage here because you used to cover the South, but it was Mississippi. And can you both have a go at the year in which Mississippi legalized the consumption of alcohol? Oh, I would guess late, 50s or 60s. Really? Yeah. No. It was 1966. Wow, that's astonishing. Well, it's a good thing that alcohol is legal because it's one of the few pleasures afforded to us during the lockdown. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Stay well. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's all from us. Please give us a review and a rating on your podcast app. While you're there, you can have a listen to The Intelligence, our daily podcast from The Economist. Today's episode looks at how COVID is changing home entertainment. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>